They say small business is the backbone of America. So what's the best way to support a small business? It is to learn more about them and share with your family and friends. We interview founders from across the world who have started and scaled their business through the ups and downs, long hours, and the rewards that come from sacrificing their time to build their business. Welcome to First to Arrive, Last to Leave, The Journey of an Entrepreneur. All right, welcome to another episode of First Arrive, Last to Leave. We have another very special guest joining us from Minneapolis today. Today we have Maria Burns Ortiz. She's the CEO at Seven Generation Games. She's a best-selling author. She has a great storied history of entrepreneurship. Maria, I'm so honored that you joined us today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. No, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So... Tell us a little bit about your journey. Uh, start, you know, like I said, seven seven generation games is is where you are now. But can yeah. you tell us a little bit about how you got there, and then a little more about what you do? Yeah. So I used to say I'm like one of the more atypical tech co-founders, but I think we're seeing more and more like people aren't necessarily coming from that super. Like I went to school for computer science, and then I worked at Google, and then I got my own startup. Um, but I was a journalist. I actually was in sports media for almost a decade, um, worked at ESPN, worked in, in newspaper, did a whole bunch of things. And then kind of, no, I, it was tied to a bunch of things, but kind of got to a point where I thought like, is this it? Because I, I was writing I had a column with ESPN and I thought like, is this all there is? Because that's what I'd set out to do. And no one ever says like, and after you do that, then what? You know, <laughs> and I started being like, yeah, is this, you know, I can't do this forever. Um, and this is just life is peaked. So um, around that time, my mom, who is also my co-founder, had this kind of been talking about like, let's do something together. And then she said, hey, I think we should make um, video games to teach math. And so she also has a PhD and an MBA and she's just amazingly incredible. Um, and so she was saying, you know, I'm really good on the, for, for her thing, she was saying, she says, I, you know, I can do the technology side and the math side, but we need someone to, you know, help with the creative side and the content side. And so we also roped in her husband. So we're kind of the most atypical, I like to say, like Latina founded business, because people are like, oh, well, what? Yeah, we have a tech company um, and started building out games. And so we started making our own games and we did that. Um, really looking at closing equity gaps and kind of um, making sure that all kids or as many kids as possible could see themselves reflected in their curriculum and their classrooms and the technology that they they play with, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, from there now we are working on creating a platform model. So not just are we able to create games, but really democratizing how games are made. Ooh, I love it. So what were some of the biggest growing pains and obstacles that you had going from your previous yeah. position to now owning this business? You know, I think the biggest one, and I always, people, I feel like sometimes is money, right? Like mm -hmm. fundraising is the challenge. Money is a challenge because without money, and I think people like to dance around this and say, it was this, like without money, it's not a business, right? You need to be able to pay people. You need to be able to have, you know, pay for equipment, you need to be able to do all of those things. And for us, especially um, because we weren't typical Silicon Valley bros, like we couldn't be further away from that. 
um, you know, it wasn't this. And and people who say, oh, it was so, you know, mm-hmm. talk about fundraising. Oh, a couple years ago, it was so easy. It was so, first of all, if there were people throwing money off of a balcony, like no one told me where it was because <laughs> I never, ever found it easy. And so for us, I think part of it was finding ways that whether it was through traditional investor fundraising, which we did a little bit of, but really coming up with different ways. We did a lot of grants. We did, you know, crowdfunding. We did lots of things. But finding ways to fund that was number one. And then I think there's a lot in the beginning when you're building out your culture and understanding that there are people that are really good employees, but not everyone's cut out for a startup, right? Not everyone's cut out for a business that is kind of building and growing. And and sometimes, too, one of the biggest challenges or things that we've learned is like sometimes the people, you know, that are really good in the beginning, when you come to that next stage, you're coming out of kind of startup mode and into growth mode maybe those people need to change as well. And so really understanding that was was really valuable. And um, someone said to me recently that, you know, a, a company is not a family, it's a sports team. And I really uh-huh. like that uh, metaphor because I was saying it's really true. You know, it's not that you don't care for people, it's not you don't, but do they help you get to that ultimate goal? Because, you know, I have three kids and I'm not going to cut my daughter no matter what. But, you know, if if I'm running a, a, a team and I need a better player, I might go look for a better player and let someone go. And so I think those are some of the challenges early on and even still to this day that, you know, we're learning and growing and, and, and kind of dealing with. I love that analogy. What was it like for you not having necessarily a tech background all of a sudden being the leader of a tech company? I know you had co-founders yeah. who could help, but... Yeah. Can you talk about that journey where you, you I mean, you had, a, you had a take on a lot, not just a company, but now in maybe an industry you weren't 100% familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I had a background in journalism, which I think was really valuable. I did work in digital media. So there were some certain things like very, very basic stuff like, you know, how to how to, you know, do some stuff with websites and things like that. So I uh, had I pretend that I did not have some deep understanding, but it wasn't like how do I turn on this computer? Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think for me, one of the things in journalism that you had to do was like learn things really fast and be able to explain them to average people. Right. And so I've never worried about asking things I didn't know. I never worried about like, will this make me sound stupid? Because really the whole goal of it is asking questions and learning the software and the product. And really when you're running a company, when you're CEO, you're never going to be the best at everything you have to have an understanding of all things but then know that there's people under you that are going to be better at that than you Mm -hmm. um and that's fine because then i can direct to them and so there was a lot of kind of learning and things especially when i was talking about we can do this right like you know making proposals or promising things to customers and stuff i you know had wanted to make sure to go back to uh you know the the co-founders and and then the developers now that we have a staff too that are more technical savvy than me and be able to make sure I'm not promising things we can't do. But really, I feel like in that role, my goal was never to be the most technical person, but to be able to have an understanding of that so that I can do what we need to do on a business side so the technical people can have work. I love it. And then I want to go into the money side, too, because mm-hmm. yeah. my friend is actually working on a fund for women specifically. And her stats, it is terrifying how yeah. few women do get like how few women get funded. I want to say it's like 4% or something like ridiculous like that. So as you're going through the alternate routes, um, 
was that just your, you know, were you were you getting hit up where you just couldn't find the right people? Was it just getting turned down? Like, what was that journey like of trying to get funding, yeah. being women founders? Well, mostly. Yeah, you know, it was a combination of, of those things, right? Because, yeah, then women, it's between three and four mm-hmm. percent, you know, get VC funding. Um, for Latinas, it's 0.4 percent, you know. Wow. And so we really looked and we're like, look, we're really good with numbers and the numbers are not in our favor, no matter how good we are. But another thing that, you know, has been proven with women founders is, you know, male founders a lot of times are funded on potential and women founders are funded on on what they've already accomplished. And so I always say it's a lot easier to say, you know what, I think he could do this as opposed to saying, but you haven't yet done this. Well, if you gave me the money that you were giving him, then I could do it too. Um, So I think that was a big part of it for us. And really, we kind of looked and we're like, do we want to keep, you know, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and it takes it away from the day to day. Right. And so I found, you know, if I'm putting my effort to raising money, maybe I'm seeing some success in that. But if I'm putting my effort to growing revenue or we we wrote a lot of federal grants, um, if we're putting that to that and our success rate is much higher, even though the industry and technology is very much like, well, who have you raised money from and you have done that? And my point is, doesn't really matter if you don't like the fact that I didn't raise money from X funder because one, you're not funding me. And two, I've been paying attention to your portfolio companies and we've outlasted the last four companies you invested in. I am that kind of per- person where I keep a list of, of revenge. Um, <laughs> but I think that's also really important to realize that that there's a lot of barriers and obstacles when it comes to, to women and achieving funding. And so we thought, you know, the thing is, the the bar always moves, right? So they'd come back and say, come back when you have 20,000 users, come back with 20, you know, we've got 50,000. Oh, but it took you too long. And, and a lot of it was basically this circle to be like reasons why we weren't good enough. And we just came to the conclusion like, you know, you're wrong. We're amazing. And so we were going to find other ways to go after that. Um and it, it succeeded, you know, and eventually the further along you go, the more people want to jump on board. Um, still, like I said, no one's running in and throwing bags of money in my office. But I think that's been a big thing is you can look at it and be really frustrated, which we we are and were and, and probably will continue to be. But also we couldn't let that stop us because, you know, we were just determined to find a way to make it work. I love you. You're yeah, awesome. I know. <laughs> I like the list. <laughs> I know. I have revenge lists too. So I actually have a t-shirt that says never, never underestimate me. And, and if you ever do, I'll remember it. Just saying. Exactly. You know? Exactly. I will take it with me to my grave. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but I don't hold grudges. Anyway. <laughs> um, how is it working with Kickstarter? I know a lot of female yeah. entrepreneurs want to get their um, products out there and, and launch and, and capital is an issue, but how is it using Kickstarter? You know, for us, it was great because it was one of those things where we did have a, you know, we didn't come from a network necessarily where we knew lots of people that would turn around and invest $100,000 in us, but we knew enough people that, you know, if you hit them up and say, hey, give us 20, give us 50, do that. So that was really helpful. It was kind of a way that folks could get behind it. And because we're doing games, we were able to build out kind of a community too with, with folks who are using our games um, and build that out. So for us, it was really good. But we kind of did Kickstarter. Uh, we did three Kickstarters total for over 90000 Um And when we did Kickstarter, it was kind of a dual thing. One, the money, because the money is great, but also it was a really good way to raise visibility kind of yeah. as a marketing tool and a thing where it's not just, 
here's what we're doing. Just, you know, support us, back us. Here's what we're doing. Here's a new thing that we've done. And so I think a lot of times people look at it just from the funding standpoint. But for us, the visibility standpoint was just as valuable as the funding part. And I think it's something that it's it's different. It gets people to pay attention. It is a it is it is so time consuming. Like we did them. We knew that it was going to be three weeks of just nonstop pushing it. And that's your focus. But then we came away successful and more people knew about what we were doing. More people were excited about getting our product. And so, yeah, we we thought it was a, a good thing. And I, you know, anyone that has that kind of a product that could go through that, I think it, it's it's great because you also get these early adopters that that are behind you. Yeah, and I want to talk about the evolution of your company because you started with a math game. Now there's quite a few games from what I can see. So what has that been like going from, okay, we've got a game, we've proven the concept, we've got users. Now, how do you grow and then how do you make those decisions on growth? Yeah, I think we're kind of backwards because a lot of times they tell people like, look for a huge problem that needs to be solved and see how you can do that. And we looked at initially, we thought, how can we close the math gap for indigenous youth, right? We were looking at underrepresented, underserved communities. We had connections within uh, uh, these communities. And so we were said, okay, and we had one of our early founding team um, kind of folks was was tribal school board uh, chair and had been a principal and all these things. And so we thought, let's, let's start here and we'll focus on this and then we'll find ways to maybe replicate that. Um, and then as we started going, we started like expanding that, saying, well, maybe we could take what we built here and expand it into English language learners. Maybe we can take, and then we had other folks coming saying, you know, you've been teaching math and social studies. Could you teach, you know, um, substance abuse prevention skills? Could you do financial mm-hmm. literacy? Could you do all these other things? And so because we built out a platform, uh, or um, initially it wasn't even a platform, we just built out kind of our process and our code, realizing that we'd have to build a number of games to kind of serve these, you know, diverse different users that we were going to target. Um, we started saying, yeah, we we probably could, you know, and in the beginning we said, well, we're maybe we'll try it out. And we had some really early partners that wanted to come in and, and pay for the development of those games. So we were able to do that. And then from there, actually, because we built out our process that way, we started thinking the biggest bottleneck, honestly, is our time and our ability. Right. And so what if we can take the technology that we've had and built and been using in house and now license that so that we're not, you know, the the kind of gatekeepers to the content creation and actually make it possible for for anyone to make games. And so that's what we're rolling out this calendar year. So it's kind of been all of our focus towards that. Um, But really, our whole goal has been like, how can we increase the content and, you know, representation that exists in educational technology and, and do that. And so if you had asked me when we started out from one math game, focus on closing the math gap, on the Spirit Lake Dakota Nation to now, I would have thought that seems really, really ambitious. Um, and I think I might have been like overwhelmed by that. And so for us, I think because we started with a very specific problem and then we're able to kind of back up and see how it applied to lots of other places, we were actually more effective in getting to what we really needed to do to solve a bigger problem than if it had been like, find this huge problem and solve it. Is, is your business model mostly schools or is it home and schools? Like, it seems like you can be in yeah. a lot of different places at once. 
So initially we were selling to schools mm -hmm. um, when we were just doing our own games. And that was a nightmare because it is long, it is slow, it is everything that no one wants to have to do with sales. <laughs> um, and to be fair, I, I agree with that. Because if you're saying use this product in the classroom, one, they want to know that you're going to be around in, in a year or two because the teachers are going to learn how to use it. They're going to embed it in their curriculum. They're going to do all of those things. They also want a lot of data showing that it works because if you're going to say use this for X many hours and, you know, a, a semester, if it doesn't work, you're stealing, you know, third, fourth, seventh grade kids hours of education in the communities that we were in, the kids were already significantly behind. And so I completely understood that from a logical, you know, person kind of impact driven person from a business side that's miserable, right? Mm -hmm. And so for us also, it's it's this long sales cycle and it's not necessarily huge checks. And so what we actually started doing is we were building on our own games and we had all these other publishers and organizations and nonprofits saying, hey, you know, how you're building those games. Can you make them for us? And they had bigger checks. They had the distribution channels already into schools or homes or nice. whatever users they wanted. And I didn't have to deal with all of that. And now it's not like, you know, easy still. It's still challenging because sales is always hard, but it was, you know, exponentially easier, exponentially more money and exponentially faster sales cycles. So that's who our primary folks we're working with is. And, and when I say curriculum, it's anyone that has curriculum, right? There's, you know, nonprofits, you know, 4-H programs, tons of different opportunities, um, you know, financial institutions, anyone that wants to, you know, take something that's previously been a PDF, which is really boring and make it into something fun. I love it. I love it. Um, so how did the 10KSB program uh, affect the business? You know, it's interesting. So when I went into it and I did the whole applying and everything, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. It sounds really cool. But like, am I really going to change what I'm doing? Right. And it sounds terrible now to say that because you're like, of course, I'm excited to learn. But the truth is, I was like, well, we're doing this. It'll be good. It really, really shifted our focus. And I was saying, you know, we've, we kind of have doubled, tripled down on this platform model, on making that possible and getting that to the next step. We actually ended up kind of making some changes with our staff to make sure that, you know, it as like some of those tough choices where we actually kind of slimmed down our team so that everyone's focusing on that instead of, are we making games? Are we making a platform? Are we trying to sell our own games? And so actually it really kind of pushed us to that where we said like, no, this is what we're gonna do. This is where we see the most potential and focusing in on that. And so it really, really did shift what we were doing in a better way, in a way into when I came out of it and I started telling folks, here's what we're doing. Here's our business plan, our model, our focus, like all of a sudden a lot of investors and, and folks or even people who, you know, before have been like, well, I don't quite understand. Like, oh, that makes sense. I really like that idea. So it really did, um, you know, make a much bigger difference than I expected going in. And I didn't go in closed minded, but I think when you've been running a company for a little while, you're like, this is the way we're doing things and we want to grow. But you're kind of hesitant in some ways to like go all in. And by the end, I was like, well, we've done all this work and this research and this, you know, analysis and all this stuff. And this is what we should be doing. So that's what we did. I love it. How does the platform, like I'm more, like I'm interested in this business model too, as you talk about, you go from we're the content creators, we own the content mm -hmm. to we're opening up a platform to allow other people to create the content. And you mentioned like on a licensing. So how does that work? Like, are you just kind of the middleman that you help them create and you help them get to, you know, the distribution or how does that work for your, I, I just, I really want to break right, down yeah. that business model. 
Yeah. So I don't know. I, I It's always hard because I'm like in technology. I don't know how much people don't know. Like, you know, there's WordPress, right? And so mm-hmm. basically almost every website nowadays is a WordPress site, mm-hmm. right? And so WordPress is built, though, the way that websites look different is because there's all these different templates, right? Mm-hmm. You can take a template, you can adapt it, and you make it look a little bit different. And these people use one template. And what, And so for us, that's kind of what we're looking at, what we're doing with with our platform model is, is it's kind of basically modular blocks of code that can be kind of integrated in different ways. Um, you know, you can swap out the artwork or things, but we make it as easy as possible to do that. So, it, you know, if you can go and, you know, upload an image file, basically, you know, or, cha- you know, edit text and say, you know, write a tweet kind of deal, you know, you could be able to go in and do that with our platform. And then at the end, you kind of have this infinite number of educational games because you've used this platform these kind of, you know, educational game template, you picked, hey, I want to do a maze game, or I want to do a, you know, a matching game or something like that. And then you can connect them together to have your own game. And the goal of that too, is that anyone can have their own game. So previously, you had to have a game, if you wanted a game, you either spend a lot of money, you know, $100,000 to have a decent game to put on your own platform, or you're stuck with some of these other platforms, you know, you could do it, but you'd have to embed it somewhere else. Or, you know, there's things like Roblox, where people can build games, but you have to then be within Roblox. And so us, it's kind of this ability to take, create your own game, and then distribute it however you want through your own site or as an app. Um, But really, you know, taking the, the base of the technology and then making it something that that the average user can can adapt. And how much regulation do you have having to watch, I mean, you've got an audience of children, right? right? Like what kind of, what's that layer in your business that the checks and balances, right? I don't know what, how they, cause obviously Roblox, I, I mean, I'm a parent right. Right, been right. down that road. So how, how do you navigate that? So for us, I mean, really what we're doing is right now, we're working with curriculum publishers. So they're okay. already folks who have that kind of curriculum. And really what we found, and people always talk, and this is one of the things that, that also came out of 10 KSB, and they're like, who's your competitors? You know, or not just who's your competitors, but what are your possible clients using? Mm-hmm. And that for us is our potential clients were using PDFs. So they already have the curriculum. They already have everything set. They know what they want. Sometimes they have the artwork and they have all these things, but it's just boring, right? And so how could they take that and ship that? And so for us, that's one of the other things is because we're not a platform in the sense that we're a game platform that that people are using and interacting with, we're kind of that tool that people can use to create games and then they're responsible for the distribution of that. Okay. So yeah, there's a lot of things in education like personally identifying information and all of those things that we're really mindful of and that we learned. And so now we can pass along a lot of those best practices, but also just then being that vehicle that, you know, if someone uses it, they're kind of responsible for the distribution and and the curriculum and all of that. Okay. Okay. So you have your own games and then you help support other people building their games? So right now we have our own games. We well we we had our own games. We have they still exist. We still sell them. We still that. Um, But now we've transitioned into building out games for folks, um, and we use our platform in house. So we're like the and I always hate the phrase, but uh, you know like where it's like eating your own dog food, right? But it's like that idea of like we need to make sure it works and to actually be able to use it. And now what we're doing in this next phase is kind of hand-holding, transitioning some of the customers that we've had into this next phase. So, hey, here's how we did this for you. Here's how you can do it going forward with some of that. And, and 
you know, it's kind of one of those two where the initial version will have a good amount of stuff, but it will be something that we can then expand on and expand on kind of as the library grows. That's so cool. How did, and I, we always joke, we don't want to talk about COVID, but I think COVID is an interesting case for you because you've got kids at home, you've got, you know, you're in this prime situation, you know, I'm sure schools were looking at ways to entertain kids. So can you talk about COVID and the, and how it impacted your business? Yeah, it was super strange for us in a way because it's like, okay, COVID happens, it hits, and everything was absolutely chaos and awful for the schools we were working with. I mean, I had three kids I was trying to do distance learning with, and that was insane. So I don't, for teachers who, you know, had 40 or, you know, multiple classes or, you know, 20 kindergartners, you know, it was a really difficult time. And there were so many things in the communities we were in were really hard hit. And it felt very strange because for us on a business standpoint, like things had never been better. And so it was this very strange kind of dynamic. But we also saw like and that kind of COVID also pushed us somewhat to this because one of the things that had happened is we had been selling kind of our games and like that would be was a key part of our revenue and business model. And we had this technology, we had games, we knew that the games worked, that they produced outcomes, that we'd actually done a lot of work to make sure they ran in remote rural offline environments. So things, you know, a lot of technology is made to just be used in schools and schools and homes, especially in a lot of, you know, economically disadvantaged areas or rural communities are different um, in terms of technology access. And so we had stuff that ran in all those places. And so we thought, okay, we can't sit here and go to schools, be like, hey, I hear everything's chaos. Um, (laughs) You want to buy some games, right? right? I mean, it just, from an ethical level too, we just felt like that was horrible. So what we did is we just made everything free during during COVID. We just mm. like everything's free. Anyone that wants to use it, anything, you know, we had our users like triple in like six weeks. It was just wow. crazy. Um, but then we also were like, okay, you know, we've been seeing this model. We've been trying to like selling individual games was like pushing water uphill. And so really focused on like, we know that there's a need and a market for this. We know people want this. We just think that the way that we're selling it is just not necessarily, I don't know, it wasn't even unsustainable, but it was really hard and it wasn't the best approach. And so it was also because that we started to look at how can we have another business model that enables us to do this, but in a way that we aren't just going to be burned out in a few years. Mm-hmm. Mm, so you actually changed things because of COVID, like we, it shifted. Yeah, yeah we did. And, and like I said, and we started to say, and it was interesting because for a long time, we had a lot of people kind of coming in and be like, you know, would you build a game? Do you do this, do that? And first we're kind of hesitant, you know, like, well, we're doing our own thing. And, you know, um, but also it it made people see the value of, so, it, but then we started looking like, what are some other business models? People are asking us to make games for them and give us money. Why are we not taking that? <laughs> Why are we saying we're going to go do this school sales model? And then also it, for it, a lot of organizations, a lot of folks who previously had curriculum that was just, you know, either, paper handouts or not interactive or any of these things started saying, we need a better way to do that too. Um, Because I think, you know, they just saw what they had wasn't, either wasn't translating into this kind of environment where things had to go offline, but also like the future, right? It wasn't 21st century technology or, you know, it wasn't 21st century curriculum. And so there was a, like this push towards how can we make changes to how we're doing it? And we were like, hey, we're here, we make games. How do you see the industry shifting? Like, you know, obviously, like you said, PDFs, textbooks, mm-hmm. all of that. As you grow this business, 
do you see the model shifting where school's going to look different? And what kind of do you, you know, like from his perspective of kids yeah. learn through gaming, it's more fun. It's, how, do you see a different future where gaming really does become more prominent in how kids learn? I, you know, I hope so, right? No, but um, <laughs> it'd be good for I, you. I mean, I know, but <laughs> it's like everyone should adopt it. I think that you know, I think with all things in terms of of technology, like technology will never solve everything. And right. I, and I always say like the robots aren't taking over, um, or we're a long way off, you know. Um, but I do, and I think especially with with teachers too, it's like you're always going to need that teacher in that classroom to be able to assist students and and do the one on one and do a lot of things that you can't do through technology. But I do think that technology really can help. I mean, we we did we work with English language learners for one thing, and you can have kids in a classroom who are in ELL that have been here for three years, who've been here for three months, who've been here for three days, right, in that classroom. And so there's this huge range, and you can't expect one person to deal with, you know, 17 kids at 17 different levels. And so games, technology that's adaptive, can allow that software to focus in and then the educator can work with students individually or get a lot of data and i think there's a large value to that so i think we'll see more of that hopefully and i i think there has been a little bit of a shift of games there's still some people that are very anti-game but i think you know i always talk about like look we know kids are going to be on it whether we want them to be on it or not and so why not meet them where they are but i also i also feel very strongly like you know, games to me are what education should be. And not just in terms of fun, but like in a video game, you don't just like go and win the first time you play it. You go, you lose, you die, you figure out what you learn, you go back, you try to do it again better the next time, and then you do it again and again. And sometimes it takes you a dozen attempts to get past that challenge. And you don't see that in the classroom when it comes to worksheets. I've never seen a kid be like, I failed this problem five times, but I'm going to erase it again and do it the sixth mm -hmm. time. And so I think if you look at it from that standpoint, you know, resilience and and just a application of, you know, failure and removing that terror of failure, because in school, fail is terrible. And in a game, mm -hmm. of course, you're going to fail. And then you're going to go back and you're going to get it. Um, I think there's a huge amount of, of value that games add in that way. And I think people are going to are starting to see just look, you can't fight it. You, you can't fight technology. Let's find ways to embrace it. Um, and, and so hopefully we see more of that in school. It's interesting at the beginning, you mentioned that there are some financial literacy games. Anything that you're really excited about to see? I think that's that's something I wish so someone would have taught me in school or that that was part of a conversation because all the I feel like I'm getting most of my learning from Instagram when it comes to um, financial literacy now. So how do you see that that changing or do you have some ideas yeah. coming up? Yeah, no, I think there's yeah, I think there's games can do a lot of things that you can't do. Right. Like one of the things we talk about and we've done a couple of different projects that involve financial literacy. Right. Because one of the things is like, well, how do you understand the value of things? How do you understand that? OK, if you spend eight hundred dollars or if you make $800, but then you go back and you look at the fact that you spent a thousand, you actually have lost money, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think, but the cool thing about games is they enable you to create these environments where you can do those things, you know, and compress it very rapidly. And so that's what we've talked about is it creates these kind of simulations um, through a game narrative that like you do this and then you see the outcomes and you can go back and you can try it again. 
So I think that's one of the things is we we initially have done, and most of our work is K-12 and focused on kind of standards aligned, because that's just where a lot of education funding and, and folks want to work on. But really, as we look at all these other opportunities, you know, whether it's financial literacy, um, my kids, you know, everyone's so have to go through things like, you know, concussion training as a parent of a soccer player, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is such a boring like website. You just click through and you click through and then you answer the questions, right? Like there's lots of things, job training, all of these things that I think could be much more fun and engaging. And then not just that, but you see the applications to them in the real world, right? It's not just, oh, you know, if you spend a thousand dollars, you know, thousand dollars and you end up with 800, did you make or lose money? No, it's like, hey, I bought this, I bought this, I did this, look at how much I had. Oh, wait, at the end, you're out. You know, if it's, you know, does this see, you know, is this lots of different scenarios on that? I think it it just makes it more applicable. And that's what I also find with games is like, I talk about we do, we did math games, especially in the beginning, and no one ever ran into my office and said, well, okay, before COVID, when I had a second grader, um, you know, ran into my office and shouted, what's five times seven? Um, but, you know, <laughs> I think that's the way kids feel like they're being taught, you know, quick, what's the answer? What's the answer? Not, why will I ever use this? And if you can show them why they use it, something like, oh, so it matters. And I think any games provide the opportunity to take that learning, put it in context, show it, and then also make it okay to make mistakes so that when you reach the real world version of it, you're good to go. Sounds like you have a whole opportunity like, oh, you want to start a business? Okay. <laughs> Before yeah. You need to play this game for the next like three and just oh. figure out like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, okay, like this is what it's going to be. Oh, now something's coming at you out of thin air and it's going to hit you. But now you got to figure out these numbers. Like there's a very good opportunity for you there. <laughs> the alarm where it wakes you up in the middle of the night with something that you forgot to, <laughs> to do. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love it. Okay. Do you want to do rapid fire? Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, so what's fire. your uh, favorite beverage? Coffee. That's fair. Yeah. Yep. Uh, best advice ever been given? You know, my grandmother uh, used to always say, like, don't let the bastards get you down. <laughs> and when I was eight, I didn't quite understand it the way that it resonates with me today. <laughs> Very sound <laughs> advice. Uh, if you could have dinner with anyone. Um, probably Gabriel Garcia Marquez, because I think he's just the most brilliant writer that ever lived. Uh, and then your uh, morning routine. Um, so usually I yell at Alexa to, you know, snooze the alarm several times and then I get up and I start yelling at children. I mean, not yelling, but like, hurry, we've got to go. We're late. We have to be in the car in five minutes. Um, and throwing clothes at people. Yeah, you're in Minnesota. You got a lot of clothes. I'm from Wisconsin, so I know. Okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are you currently reading? I just, so I just finished Cloud Cuckoo Land, and then I just bought The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, but I haven't started it. Oh, that's a good one. I finished that okay. one. Yeah. I heard one. it was good. Yeah. <laughs> and a, a top bucket list item. You know, I guess travel. Um, I, I like travel. There's lots of places. My daughter and I were saying, I like Tokyo, I haven't been to Japan, so that's, that's up there. Maybe not next on my list, but definitely on there before. Awesome. Check it out. And uh, what's a guilty pleasure? You don't have to feel guilty. Gu- yeah, we have to, we have to rearrange <laughs> that question. <laughs> you know, I would say like clicking on all of those headlines that are, you really know that are just there to click on you yeah. and then reading totally trashy stories, you know, like news stories, thinking like I should, there's no value to this, but like here I am. Yep. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being here today. If somebody 
wanted to learn more about what you do, uh, where is the best place for them to go? Uh, so our website, Seven Generation Games, seven the number, uh, generationgames.com. I would say singular generation, plural games, but sevengenerationgames.com. Awesome. And that'll be on our uh, notes page over at firsttoarrivelastsleeve.com. Thank you again for doing this. I loved meeting you. This is why I love Goldman Sachs 10K. It really unites like getting to meet amazing people like you. So thank you for joining us all the way from Minneapolis uh, today. It was really fun getting to know you. Thanks for having me.